My name is Jonathan Jakes. We love the Dayum family. We, we've been able to get to know them a lot over the years. They started off at the Kirk before Jordan was called here to serve y'all. And Jordan, you know, honestly, I think it's a huge honor to be invited to preach because it's a way of imitating Jesus. When we, when we share our position of, of authority, it's actually a way of, of, of being able to imitate Christ because um, Christ shared his church with us. He's given us leaders and teachers within his church to lead it. Um, and so for Jordan to share this pulpit with me, for me to be here with you, um, is a great honor, and I'm thankful for being here. Um, Jordan's like a mentor to me. His wife is like a mentor to my wife. And so really, to me, I see y'all as an extended, extended family. So thank you for letting me come this morning. I would like to invite you, and I think it might be up here, um, to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 70. If you have your Bible today, to turn to Psalm 70. And I'm just going to give you a brief introduction on Psalm 70 because it's really important to know what we're reading and the context it's coming to us in. Psalm 70, of course, is written after God created the world. So it's assumed that we are dignified image bearers. We can assume that when we read this. It also came after the fall of humanity, after Adam and Eve sinned and, and a curse came into the world and brokenness came into the world. Psalm 70 came after that. And it's, it's in the aftermath of all of that. But remember, in Genesis, we see God promise to send um, what my son and I call the snake crusher. Jesus, who's going to bring redemption, is promised in Genesis 3.15. And so we see this, this dual reality of living in a broken and cursed world and at the same time being able to taste redemption and glory. And I think that we can all honestly say every day in our lives we see both those things in, at moments. We see beauty and brokenness. And we know what that's like every day of our lives. So let's not forget that. Um, Psalm 70 also comes in the second book. You know, the Psalms is divided up in five sections, five books. And Psalm 70 comes in the, in the second of the, of the two um, of the five books. And the interesting thing about Psalm 70, there's another psalm um, like it, but Psalm 70 is almost a, an identical verbatim copy of the last five verses of Psalm 40, which appears at the end of book one. And there's been lots of debate over the years if it's, if it's a duplicate on accident. Nothing is an accident to God. He ordains all things. Um, what most scholars believe is that during the exilic period, the Israelites were reading the Psalms and saw the last five verses of Psalm 40 and extracted it and, and modified it a little bit to fit their context still keeping to the Psalm of David, as we see at the top. It is a Psalm of David, but it's used for their particular purposes. And that should be encouragement to us today. We can read Psalm 70 today and say, what does it mean for me today? Because we've been modeled that by the excellent community Christians who were able to bring Psalm 70 into their own context. Um, something else that's important to note is that it's, it's written um, to the choir master. They would sing this. In many ways, we just sang lots of psalms in our worship service so far. They would sing this together um, in their worship services. But this also was specifically for the memorial offering, which was a special offering to remind God, because we have to remind God, right? This is the, the, the human being coming to remind God who the person was that was offering the sacrifice. And it also served as a pledge, as a commitment. So the memorial offering is important to know as we read this psalm that the, the psalmist is actually looking at God and saying, I'm here and I'm still committed to you. Now hear my words. 
So with that context, um, let me just say a couple more things about why we need to pay attention to Psalm 70 today. Why is this important to you and I in 2019 as we live in St. Louis, Missouri? Why do we need, why we, do we need this? And I think first and foremost is because we live in a culture that values things to be done immediately. I want my instant coffee. Some of you all might be Keurig folks, you know. I do my French press. I can still do it pretty quickly. We like fast speed internet. Man, don't we get frustrated when we try to turn on our phones and there's no internet available. It, it, it irritates us. We also love really, really fast service at restaurants. We don't want to be sitting there waiting an hour for someone to serve. We want fast. And this psalm actually says, good. Bring that desire of wanting things to happen right away and bring that to God. So this is good, but at the same time, this psalm pushes against some of the values that we have in our culture. Namely, this psalm says that in order for us to get by, in order for us to get help, we have to look outside of ourselves. And that's not the American way, right? The American way is independence. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. We all understand this. We are self-made people. Be who you want to be, as you want to be, whenever you want to be. That's the culture that's kind of speaking to us all around us at all times. And that is actually very opposed to Psalm 70. So even though God's saying, yes, come and, and beg of me quickly, he's also saying, you need me. This is not something that you can do. You need to call out to me. We have an issue. When we have an issue, we have an issue of, of fears. We have issues of foes. There's four Fs. Issue of fears, issues of foes. We have frustrations. And we also have our frailty, being weak and needy. And all these things we can't solve. We can't solve these four things on our own. We need help. And the reality is we're finite and we're limited. And in Psalm 70, in these five, just five verses, God comes and shows us how we can have help and how we can have quick help. This is an individual lament. Um, this, is, this is in the category of, of a lament, but specifically, this is called an imprecatory psalm. And I'll, I'll define that in a little bit for us to understand what it means um, for there to be an imprecatory psalm. Um, but I'd like, to, if, if possible, if we could stand up together, I would like to read the word of God, if you're willing and able, and we'll begin this way. Psalm 70, beginning in verse 1. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May, they, may those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. This is the word of God. It is true and it is given to us in love. Let me pray for us. Lord, we need these words because we need you quickly. And so we pray in the name of Jesus that you come and speak to us, not through my mouth, but through yours. 
Um, help us listen to what you have to say. I'm weak and needy. We're all weak and needy. And we need you. We need your words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So the main question we're going to ask ourselves today is why should we pray for God to come speedily? Why should we pray for God to come speedily? That's the question we're going to ask ourselves today as we look at this text. Why should we, is it even appropriate to ask God to come speedily? The psalm says yes. So why? What what benefit do we have by saying, God, come fast, come now? And so as I look through the psalms and as I've been studying and reflecting on this, I see four answers. And I'll give them to you now and then we'll walk through them briefly. God is our help. God is our justice, God is our joy, and God is our hope. That's why we need to pray for God to come speedily. So let's look first at the first verse. The psalmist says, make haste, O God, to deliver me, O Lord, make haste to help me. This is parallelism. He's saying the same thing um, in a different way to emphasize his urgent need. The prayer implies a period of painful and uncertain waiting for God to act. Have you been there before? In a, seri- in, a, in a season of unknown, waiting for God to come? We've been there. Maybe you know someone that's there now. Maybe you're there now. But the cool thing about this passage is it tells us, go and take that unknown and bring it to the Lord. Demand an answer. Demand for him to show up. Uh, Spurgeon says this, it is not forbidden of us in hours of dire distress to ask for speed on God's part and his coming to rescue us. It's not forbidden to us. We can ask God to hurry because he's your God. He's come to you. He's made himself available to you. He is your Abba Father. He wants you to to want him. And even when God delays to help us, this is important, even when God delays to help us, Calvin says, it is our duty to contend against feeling of weariness. It's our duty to push against feeling upset. We shouldn't feel upset. We shouldn't feel wondering what God's doing and what God's thinking. We shouldn't just rest in that. We should push against it. The psalm says, let's push against that. And the psalm permits us to use this form of prayer in order to to make haste our desires to know what God's up to. I love this quote from Calvin because it's telling us we have freedom to boldly come to the throne of God and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? David's prayer is for protection. It's, it's, It's an expression of trusting in God. And when we call out to God in this way, y'all, it's a way for us to connect with him. He's connected to us. He's always with us. But do you feel disconnected from God? Do you feel like God's not there sometimes? Do you wonder where he's at? Have you tried calling out to him? Call out to him. The psalm is showing us a way to get to God is by yelling at him. When my son, I have a six-year-old son, Jude, and a two-year-old daughter named Jubilee, and we live in a small apartment still on campus. We're getting ready to move. But it's, it's still big enough for a six-year-old where he yells out, Dad, where are you? Come here now. Dad, where are you? Come here now. If you have kids, you know what I'm saying. Dad, where are you? Come here now. And I don't, I mean, it doesn't annoy me. Maybe a little bit. 
But at the end of the day, I want to know what my son needs. I want to go to him. I want to see where his heart, where his heart's at. And that is the way, that is the way of God too. Isaiah 41.10 says, this is what God says through Isaiah 41. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This was prophesied later after the psalm was written. But it's so important to take all of God's scripture together and say, oh, God wants to help us. He wants us to call out to him. To illustrate this, when I was, a, when I was growing up, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor in, the, in a Presbyterian Church of America, and my mom was a, the children's ministry director, and I had a wonderful childhood. I was well-loved. And by the time I was 10, my dad had been caught in a series of habitual adultery. He had cheated on my mom numerous times and came before the church and was under church discipline and was eventually excommunicated. He deserted our family and disappeared for three years. And here I am as a 10-year-old boy, this man who taught me the grace of God. I'm trying to figure out now what to believe. What do I do with this stuff? Maybe there's been a moment in your life when you've wondered, what's going on? What's true? And you know what happened? My mom prayed, and she started praying every day, sometimes out loud. Sometimes she would just pray um, as she was doing the dishes, and she would pray for God to come and help, for God to come and help, for God to come and help. And I prayed too. I prayed very specifically. I said, Lord, come help bring my dad back and make my mom and dad be married again and help us have a, have a joyful, happy family again. And sometimes God answers our prayers exactly how we ask, but sometimes he doesn't. And in this case, God helped. He didn't bring my dad back, but he did put me in a church where I had 13 elders, 13 leaders of the church, men who would show up to my house and take me fishing and take me out to lunch. And they gave me my first big boy Bible. And I learned that it's really, really important to trust God in the way that he gives help. He knows better. He took one dad away and gave me 13. The church bought our house. We didn't have to move. I wonder what your broken family is like. And I'm wondering in what ways do you need to call out to God for help? The relationship always precedes the results. Our relationship with God goes ahead of the results of what that help looks like. This is important. God's word reveals that God knows our every need. We call on him because he wants us to want him with our whole being. He wants to be in a relationship with us. So here's some takeaways from this first point. God himself is the way to help. Not your own efforts, You can see counselors. God speaks through ministers and through the body of Christ, but ultimately, help comes from the Lord. We must acknowledge our urgent need for help. You may think that you're fine. You may think that you don't need the Lord to help you right now. And according to Psalm 70, we're fooling ourselves. We need God to act now. So supplicate. There's prayers of supplication, asking God to supply you help while we're suffering. All right, the second answer. God is our help. God is our justice. I'm going to spend more time here because this is when we realize this is a psalm of imprecatory. It has an undertone that's, that's very, very um, fragile. We have to be careful with this. So I'm going to give you what, I've, what I'm going to call imprecatory psalms of one-on-one. It's a little bit of an introductory class. Jordan, your pastor, will do much better than, than I will. So ask him when he gets back. 
But imprecatory psalms fall in under the category of psalms of lament. We see this in Psalms 10, 35, 69, 70, 83, 109, 137, 140. There's many. And a precatory psalm is a psalm that's a cry for justice. It means to pray evil against or to invoke a curse upon another person. But it's a cry for justice to be done and the righteous to be vindicated. It is about making things right and it's a prayer asking for the Garden of Eden, the peace of God's Garden of Eden to come back. And this is exactly what God wants. He says through Isaiah in Isaiah 61, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and I hate wrongdoing. I will faithfully reward my people for their suffering and make an everlasting covenant with them. God loves justice. God is justice. The way we get to justice is by going to God. But what about these curses? I thought thought God's kind. I thought Christians are loving. Why does the Bible have these curses? Why, why in, in Psalm 70 does it say, let them be put to shame and confusion? Let them be brought to dishonor. Is God evil? Is he mean? Does he only like us when we like him and obey us? Is he like Santa Claus? We be good boys and girls and we get presents. If not, we get coals. We have to understand the heart of God. So here are some principles about, about the curses that help us get to the heart of God. There's five of them. The first is that people, the people being cursed in the Bible are those who hate the faithful, hate God's people, and hate God. The curses are against God's enemies, people who hate God and his people. They mock God and they hurt God and they hurt God's people. Secondly, the curses always come in poetic form, and they can be very extravagant at times. But the ultimate fulfillment of these imprecatory psalms are up to God's sovereign will. So while we pray these curses on people who are doing evil against God and God's people, we're leaving the fulfillment of those up to God, which leads us to the third point. These curses are expressions of moral indignation. They're not about us personally getting revenge. It's not my job to go around and get revenge for everyone that, that attacks God and attacks God's people. Now let me pause and say, God wants us to be justice bringers. He wants us to fight, for, fight against injustice. That's the way that we imitate him. But at the end of the day, again, remember, we're finite. We can't resolve the, the, the moral injustice, the, the sexual injustice, the racial injustice, all the different injustices that we see in the world. We can't solve these on our own. We're going to fight. We're going to try. But ultimately, it's left to God. God is the one who does this. He's promised to do this because he wants to vindicate himself for everyone to see so that he can keep his promises and for him to receive the glory and not for us to receive the glory. And then four, this is incredibly important about these these prayers of curse in the Bible. The prayers actually look to punishment as leading to conversion, reconciliation, and restoration. So when we pray these curses against people in the Bible, the goal is that they come back to God. They come come back to us, they reconcile. So when we we tell someone, let God shame you and let him turn you away, it's not forever. It's that let this work so that you come back to me and that you come back to God. That's the end goal. There's a couple of times when the psalmist assumes that the, the, the people that are doing the persecuting won't come back. 
We kind of assume that sometimes. But God is big. God is mighty. And God can turn a heart. I can't, but God can. And then lastly, we should pray these prayers. We should pray these prayers because they're in the Bible. We should pray these prayers because they are good. They are good for God's kingdom and they are good for our souls. We should not like injustice. At the same time, we have to remember God's teaching. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The, you know, that's what the old law said. Sorry, the new law says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So the Jews were used to the Pharisees saying, love your neighbor, but if it's your enemy, you hate the person. And then God comes and says the opposite. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, let me just pause and give a special word to those who've been persecuted and abused or broken. If you've been persecuted for your, for your, your testimony in God, maybe you've been abused morally, um, sexually, physically, verbally, maybe, maybe this is who you are right now. Know this, Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. He's close to you. If you're broken and you know that you are, he's close to you. He gets you. You need, among any, more than anyone else, you need to pray these psalms of lament and you need to pray these songs of imprecatory. And then lastly, our forgiveness is a process. So as we, as we try to love our enemies and forgive them, no, that doesn't happen overnight. It's a lifelong process and it may not ever be finished until Jesus comes back again. So give yourself a break if you've been abused or persecuted or hurt. When you try to forgive someone, it's not gonna happen overnight and it may not happen until Jesus comes back and makes you new. And then a message for those of you in the room who have, and we all have, against the Lord at least, those of you who are the persecutor and the abuser and the broken. Jesus comes and says, repent. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. Someone in your life or someone that, that knows about you may be praying a psalm of lament or a psalm, a pre- an imprecatory psalm over you right now. That God would work in you to turn you to him. Are there people that you have issues with? Is there brokenness that, that has not been dealt with? God's praying for you and maybe someone else is praying that you'll turn. But repentance is a process too. You can begin that road it may not complete until Jesus comes back, but he gives you a chance to come back. If you look here and back to Psalm 70 and, and verses two, three, we, look, we have to figure out who the enemies are. And this is really important because the enemies could be the people in your own home. They could be people in your own church. It's not just the people on the outside. It's not just the Muslims. It's not just the neo-Nazis. It's not just people that are like, clearly against God and his word. It could be people in your own home that are speaking unfaithfully about God and speaking against you. It can be the person who gets in the bed with you every night. And so what about shame? Brene Brown is a psychologist, a professor, and she says, this is, this is her quote on shame, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love acceptance and belonging. We feel unworthy of it. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. 
And this is, this is like Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sinned against God, they felt that shame. We were unworthy. So what do you do when you feel that shame? You hide. And they, they, they got leaves together and they hid. One idea about whether or not you're, you're dealing with shame in your life is if you're hiding it. Do you not feel free to talk about yourself? Do you not feel, feel free to talk about something deep in your heart that's been bugging you or pulling you or tugging you? Are you hiding it? That's shame. And another simple way of putting it is that guilt is something when you say, I did something wrong. Shame is when you say, I am something wrong. Do you see the difference? Shame is powerful. Dan Allender, Brene Brown thinks that all shame is bad, but according to Dan Allender and God's word, there's actually a legitimate shame and illegitimate shame. And this is really important as we look at, at these two verses. Illegitimate shame attacks our dignity. It attacks your goodness. You're, you're being made in the image of God. We should not feel shame when we're living faithfully as image bearers of God. Ultimately, God never gives illegitimate shame because we are designed for connection. We're designed for beauty, not disconnection. So Psalm 70 is not talking about illegitimate shame. Remember, the goal is always to bring the person back in a relationship with people and back with God. Dan Allender talks about legitimate shame in this way. It exposes our depravity. We should feel shame when we hurt someone. We should feel shame when we violate our relationship with other people or with the Lord. Ultimately, God gives legitimate shame so that we might experience a godly sorrow, pursue repentance, and enjoy reconnection with him and others. It's a gift. When you feel bad about something that you've done, something that you've said to a spouse, something that you did to your child, when you feel bad and that tug happens in your heart, that's a gift from God. He's saying, come have supper with me. I want, I, want, I want to be intimate with you. I want to be close with you in your pain, in your offense. I want to bring you back because I love you. This doesn't define you. I define you. You can freely speak about your shame. That's a bit about shame. When, when Psalm 70 talks about turning people back, see this as retreat. The psalmist does this in verse 2 and 3. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor. God is strong. And when people attack his name or the name of his people, he will send them away. They will tremble and they will retreat. Ultimately, God will defend himself because he is the one offended. Remember when Paul, in the New Testament, God appeared to him for the first time. Paul had been a Pharisee persecuting the church. And God appeared to him and said to him, this is before he changed his name to Paul, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. When someone hurts you, they're hurting God. When someone hurts God, they're hurting you. There's no, there's no difference between the body of Christ and Christ. We are united. We are one of the same. Right now in China, early reign covenant church, you may have heard of them, are experiencing this. Grave persecution from the government. Back in, in December, their pastor and, and, and over 100 people in their church were imprisoned. And, and by this point, they have a daily blog post you can look, look at online that gives you updates. Over 500 people, over 500 of our brothers and sisters in Christ have been imprisoned. And not just imprisoned, their homes have been ransacked, they've been beaten, things have been stolen from their home. And, and many of them may be there for a very long time. 
We want shame to come to their persecutors. We want them to change. We want them to turn away in dishonor. And God will do this. And so the reason we pray for him to come quickly is because we need him to bring his justice. Third, God, quick application too with this, pray these prayers of imprecation. Pray them. But also hold your justice and accountability with God's justice. We have to ask ourselves, what does justice mean to God, not what does it mean to me? And we do that by looking at God's word. Third, God is our joy. So God is, is our, he's our help, he's our justice, and he's our joy. And I'm going to run through these last two because this is, it's really, really important to see this in a larger picture. In verse 4, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation be evermore Say evermore, God is great. This verse is in direct contrast to the previous two verses. Those who seek and delight to hurt God's people, who say, aha, aha, will be put to legitimate shame and be turned away. But those who seek and love God and God's people, they'll say, God is great. And they will rejoice and be glad in God. The, the battle line is drawn. There's, there is such thing as right and wrong in God's economy. And this the battle line is drawn. It's usually difficult to know if people are our friends or our foes until they open their mouths. But here in these three verses, we see someone who says, aha, aha, who's waiting to get you, waiting to, fall, to find you stumble or fall. That's not your friend. But someone who's saying, God is great, who's bringing you alongside and saying, God is great. That's your friend. And we love God because he first loved us. God is actually gracious to those who seek him. Seeking the Lord in this passage doesn't mean being perfect. The Bible has that demand on us. Be perfect as I, as I am perfect. But, but the heart behind that is to be faithful. The Bible assumes that we're broken. But when we, when we find ourselves in, in a moment of shame, hurting someone else, hurting God, do we return to the Lord? Do we come back to him? faithfully, that's what it means to seek God, to keep coming back to him, to keep repenting. The joy of the Lord is your strength, is what Nehemiah 8.10 says. And here's, here's the best part of the, about this verse 4. This is a John Piper quote. The fight for joy is a battle to be fought alongside comrades. We do not fight alone. To be a Christian is to be a part of the body of Christ. So in the midst of the psalmist looking around and seeing all of his enemies coming after him, he's seeing friendly faces that can do life with him. If you're, if you're lonely in life, I would ask you the question, where are your friends in the faith? Are you bearing your burdens to them? Are they bearing your burdens to you? My wife and I and my kids are moving to London, Lord willing, in February to be church planters, pastors, and my wife and I will both help in a counseling center there. We're really excited about it, if it happens, Lord willing. Um, we went in, um, in, in, the, in May of last year, and I met a young boy who told me um, about his faith. He was like 16, I think, 17, maybe 16. And he said, I, um, I've been coming to this church. It's called New Life Swartasungit. It means Good News Community and Gujarati. He said, I've come to this church, but I have to come in hiding. I have to do it secretly. My family's Muslim. If they find out I'm, I'll come, they'll do what they did to my brother who left the Muslim faith. They'll ransack his house. They'll break into his car. They'll cut him off financially. They'll never speak to him again. And I don't want that for me. 
makes sense. And so I said, so why, 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 worth, why, why risk everything? Is this really worth the risk? And he said, absolutely. And I said, why? He's like, because these people rejoice. These people have joy in the Lord. It, they have something to live for. They share that joy in the Lord with me. That, re- that was very striking to me to hear him say that he saw God's people rejoice in the Lord and for that to be something that was worth the risk. So Highlands Church, do you rejoice in the Lord? Do you bear burdens with each other? Is it your battle cry, God is great? We must pray prayers of adoration. And lastly, God is our hope. He's our help. He's our justice. He's our joy. And God is our hope. This prayer ends, if you look at verse 5, this prayer ends as it begins, with a plea for God to, to get to it. This ending is a little bit different than most psalms of lament. Most psalms of lament end kind of positively, like, God, I'm going to celebrate you. I know that you're going to do it. This psalm of lament ends just saying, Lord, let's go. Come on. Come on, man. Help me. We've been there. We know that God's good, right? Maybe you've grown up in the church like I have. You know that God's good. He's got you. He's got you. And like the Bible is saying, don't just go to that place of optimism. Go to a place of urgency. Pray for God to speedily help you in school, in work, in marriage, in relationships with your future, with dealing with the past. Act now. Ask God to help you now. The psalmist knows, though, in the end, that this is completely up to God. The psalm leads us in being transparent about who we are. We can be honest about our situation the same way that David was honest about his situation, the same way that his great-great-grandmother, Ruth, was honest about her situation, the same way that his great-great-great-great-great-great-daughter-in-law, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was honest about her situation, and the, way that his, the same way that his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, Jesus, our Lord, was honest about his situation. He didn't want to die on the cross, but he knew that his hope was in the Lord. He knew that God's plan was good, and he trusted it, yet he wanted God to attend to him. We have to realize that God is our hope in the end. We must realize our need and remember our story by looking at the past of what God's already done in our lives, ultimately in the death, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know how quick God is to save us? Again, like I said, Genesis 3.15, the moment we sinned, the snake crusher came, and he came quickly. And you may not see him. Ask him to show himself to you. This is our hope in Hebrews 12, one through three. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, whether it's the church in London or the church in China, all bearing fruit that God is good, even in the midst of persecution, let us lay, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on him, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. He did it for his own joy. He endured the cross, despising shame, all shame, legitimate, illegitimate. He despised it all. In the end, it's going to be cleansed. And he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Consider him who endured this, this great hostility against himself, so that we could not grow weary, so that we might not grow faint-hearted. God is the hero. 
We need God to come speedily because he is our hope. He is our justice. He is our joy, and he is our hope. Do you know this Jesus? We're about to feast on him right now. Pray to him speedily and know, as Revelation twenty two twenty says, surely I am coming soon. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your promises in your word, your promises in Psalm 70, that we can be totally honest with our situation. Thank you for the, the church in China. Thank you for the church in London. Thank you for your global church all over the world that's teaching us how to suffer well by crying out to you, by bringing justice in our prayers against those who persecute you. Thank you for being our help. Thank you for being our justice, our joy, and our hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.